I'm Ray Suarez, and you're listening to America in the Middle East, What Lies Ahead on America Abroad. As the U.S. continues its gradual drawdown of troops from Afghanistan and its relationship with Pakistan begins to fray, we trace the turbulent history of American involvement in the region. It's a story that weaves together American inattention, Afghan infighting, and Pakistani intrigue. And it begins on Christmas Day, 1979. Late this afternoon, the White House charged that the Soviet Union has invaded Afghanistan with two motorized infantry divisions crossing the border headed toward Kabul. Recently, massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan. President Jimmy Carter addressed the nation 10 days after the invasion began. It is a deliberate effort of a powerful, atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people. President Carter authorized the Central Intelligence Agency to funnel weapons to Afghan resistance fighters. CIA officers were instructed to work with Pakistan, a nation that now saw the Soviet threat at its doorstep. But Pakistan was hoping for a more assertive American response. Uh, In my opinion, the United States of America cannot afford to hibernate and go back into the shell. In May of 1980, Walter Cronkite interviewed President Zia-ul-Haq of Pakistan. The period of pre-1919 is over. Mr. Cronkite, your country today is the beacon light of the free world, and it has to act in that way. And this is where he thinks that light should be shining the brightest right now. The Khyber Pass between Afghanistan and Pakistan, famed invasion route between Europe and Asia. Right now, 85 to 100,000 Soviet troops behind those hills, getting them back behind the Soviet border, or at the least, stopping them here. That's the name of the game. When Ronald Reagan took office in the winter of 1981, he quickly moved to support Pakistan and the Afghan fighters. Within two months of taking office, Reagan proposed a $3.2 billion aid package for Pakistan. President Reagan had an ally in Pakistan and another one on Capitol Hill. He was larger-than-life congressman from East Texas, Charlie Wilson. The congressman was now a major player in a covert operation that was a collaborative effort between the CIA and Pakistan's Inter-Service Intelligence, or ISI. In 1982, Congressman Wilson traveled to Pakistan to meet President Zia. I was very taken with his absolute commitment. I mean, if he had had his way, he would have, uh, he would have probably uh, donned the battle dress and gone forward himself against the Soviets. Uh, he was very committed, and uh, it was being at one with his Muslim brothers. Despite widespread resentment of the Soviet invasion, the odds were long that the Afghan resistance could actually repel the Red Army. I don't think anybody really thought that, that, the, that we were going to see the irresistible, colossal, uh, all-conquering uh, Red Army defeated by, by a few uh, illiterate tribesmen and shepherds uh, barefooted with uh, old World War I rifles. But uh, the initial strategy, and I didn't really agree with it very much, but the initial strategy, uh, particularly of the Central Intelligence Agency, was to keep the pot boiling, as they called it, and as President Zia called it. 
uh, not to let it boil over to the point that the Soviet Union would invade Pakistan, but to keep the Soviets off balance, to drain them of resources, but mostly to embarrass them on the world stage. By 1984, the U.S. had turned up the heat to the tune of more than $200 million in annual aid to the Mujahideen, seven times more than the Afghans had received just three years before. That number was matched by the oil monarchs of Saudi Arabia, who, like President Zia, looked to further the spread of Islam. But nearly half a billion dollars was just enough to keep the pot boiling, and that meant Afghans kept dying. Mujahideen, they are called. They are Afghan guerrillas fighting a holy war against what they say is a godless superpower that illegally seized their nation. For nearly five years, they've fought superbly, but now they are being pushed back into the mountains by Soviet air superiority and troop buildups. U.S. and Pakistani officials were loath to provide the Afghan fighters with more sophisticated weapons. They feared the pot would boil over and stoke a direct confrontation with the Soviets. A turning point came when Charlie Wilson brought several Mujahideen leaders to meet with CIA director Bill Casey. But then right in the middle of the meeting, they asked if he would excuse them for a few minutes while they prayed. And that left just he and me sitting at the table, whereas the Mujahideen were spread out their prayer rugs and were facing east and doing their prayers. And I just whispered in his ear, I said, uh, I said, Mr. Mr. Director, we just can't let men this brave sell their lives too cheaply. And he thought about it a minute, and he said, we have, but we won't anymore. Milt Bearden would become the CIA's station chief in Pakistan. I think Bill Casey, being a deeply moral guy, a lot of people don't see that side of him, but he was a really, you know, go, go to Catholic Church mass, go to mass on a Wednesday morning type guy, you know. Had decided at some point that fighting to the last Afghan to tie the Soviets down was, was not the most moral thing you could do. And he decided to uh, up the ante, increase the heat, and try to win, which he was more comfortable with. Bearden arrived in Islamabad during the summer of 1986, by that time, the flow of guns and money that had once been a trickle was now a torrent. But to win the war against the Soviets, the U.S. had to up the ante in Afghanistan. Washington gambled on a controversial anti-aircraft missile called the Stinger. In a major policy decision, the Stinger missile, the most advanced portable anti-aircraft missile in the American arsenal, is being shipped to anti-communist guerrillas in Afghanistan, there to be used to shoot down Soviet planes and helicopter gunships. By 1988, victory for the Mujahideen was in sight, but one of the leading architects of that victory did not live to see his triumph. Good evening. Pakistan's President Mohammad Zia al-Huk was a shrewd and ruthless military ruler of a strategically vital country, and he was an important friend of the United States in that dangerous part of the world. Tonight, Zia is dead, along with the U.S. ambassador and an American general. They were killed when the Pakistani airplane in which they were riding exploded and crashed. And that evening, several of Arnie's friends were having, so we were having sort of a, a wake at, I think it was the Palm restaurant, and all of a sudden I got a telephone call. I didn't know how people knew I was. Robert Oakley was working on South Asian affairs at the National Security Council when Zia's plane went down. He said, Bob, this is George Schultz. I'm at the Republican National Convention in 
New Orleans, but tomorrow at 12 o'clock I'm leading the funeral delegation to Pakistan and you're coming along, but you better bring two bags because you're not coming back, you're the new ambassador. It soon became clear to Oakley that America's Saudi and Pakistani allies were hoping to do more than just evict the Soviets. The Pakistanis have always wanted to have dominance over any regime in Kabul. And at the same time, Zia wanted as much support from Saudi Arabia as he could get. So he's perfectly willing to have the Saudis not only provide assistance to the Mujahideen, freedom fighters, but also to work with Pakistan's political Islamic parties inside Pakistan. So you had this thousands of uh, madrasas, Islamic schools, and mosques uh, being put up in the border area. The Saudis plus uh, some of the radical Islamic parties, uh, they were Pakistani. So this is part of uh, the Pakistani objective, you see. Saudi influence wasn't limited to matching America's funding for the jihad dollar for dollar. From throughout the Muslim world, young men were attracted to the noble cause of the Afghans, and one was a Saudi named Osama bin Laden. At the time, these small bands of fighters barely attracted attention. There were a lot of foreign philosophers in Peshawar. There were a lot of rich Wahhabi Saudis in Peshawar. And they were in the rear areas in Afghanistan. But they were writing checks and giving advice. It is a great myth that the CIA recruited Arab fighters. The idea that Osama bin Laden was fighting the Red Army with his AK-47 is just preposterous. But Congress had begun to worry that the CIA and Pakistan's ISI were favoring the most radical Mujahideen fighters. Ed McWilliams was a Foreign Service officer in Kabul. He believed the U.S. should recalibrate its support toward Afghan moderates. I essentially echoed the concern that too much assistance was going to the most fundamentalist elements within the Mujahideen, that this was undermining our objectives in Afghanistan of a democratic evolution there. In the end, little was done to shift the funds flowing into Afghanistan. The main enemy was the Soviets, and they were being driven out. They were putting the best face on it. Soviet troops were coming home. They crossed the Amul River over the Friendship Bridge into Soviet Uzbekistan. Tanks and armored personnel carriers in parade formation. With this ceremony, the Soviets announced that all but 20,000 troops were out of Afghanistan. The exit of the Soviets ended a bloody chapter in Afghanistan's history. But after the Soviets left, America disengaged from Afghanistan as well, and the country became a dangerously broken state. Ed McWilliams. It was a policy of disengagement, and uh, as a consequence, we saw over a decade of, of real suffering uh, among the Afghan people, and as we subsequently learned, the creation of a, uh, a base for jihadist elements who not only attacked us, remember, you had jihadists who went on to operate in Central Asia, in uh, the Caucasus, certainly in China, and I would say also, obviously, against U.S. interests in Africa. A policy of disengagement was regrettable, but was it avoidable? Robert Oakley believes U.S. officials couldn't have foreseen the dangers of stepping back from Afghanistan. The United States had far more success in Afghanistan than anyone had thought because it led to the dismantling of the Soviet Union, the liberation of Eastern Europe. It didn't cause both those things, but it certainly accelerated them by several years. True, there was blowback, but uh, at that point, 
nobody with any influence in the administration, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Congress could foresee this uh, rise of radical Islam. It just wasn't there. And when it did begin to uh, show up, we no longer had any leverage. I'm joined again by Ken Pollack and Michael Doran, both of the Saban Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. In the piece we just heard about America's involvement in Afghanistan in the 1980s and 1990s, when the U.S. pulled out and disengaged from Afghan politics, the results were dire. Now we have a situation where, after 10 years of war, U.S. and NATO troops are gradually withdrawing and transferring authority to Afghan forces, Many in Afghanistan are concerned that the U.S. is abandoning the region again. Is there a risk of a repeat of the 1990s, Michael Duran? There is, uh, to a certain extent. I think the Obama administration has been very eager to develop a narrative that says that it has solved the Iraq conflict, its uh, mission accomplished in Afghanistan. It wants to go to the polls in 2012 saying that it has uh, solved the problems that the Bush administration created. That's uh, understandable from a domestic politics point of view, and particularly in an era when we have um, very severe budget limitations. But it risks giving the impression in the region that we're running for the exits. Ken Pollack. When it comes to Afghanistan-Pakistan today, I think one of the greatest problems that we have is that In truth, the United States has no vital interests in Afghanistan, none. The mistakes that we made in the 1990s with regard to Afghanistan was that we didn't recognize the potential for the country to fall into chaos and create a safe haven for a terrorist group like al-Qaeda. But in many ways, that was less related to our mistakes about Afghanistan and much more related to the fact that certainly before 9-11, there was an underplaying, a misunderstanding of the extent to which terrorism really was a threat to the United States because we really didn't understand how much damage a terrorist attack like 9-11 could cause the U.S. homeland. Since then, I think both the Bush and Obama administrations have developed some very real capabilities to deal with terrorism in a way that the United States simply didn't in the 1990s. Today, when we look at the situation in Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, we're caught in the situation we are, when we are trying to invest huge resources into Afghanistan to create a nation, a, a fully functional state, when, again, we don't have vital interests there. And the best explanation that anyone can come up with is, well, it's somehow related to Pakistan. But the truth is that if we fixed Afghanistan, it wouldn't fix Pakistan. The problems of Pakistan are about Pakistan. Your comments? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't radically disagree with what uh, with what Ken says, but I don't, in, I don't entirely agree. I can find a little bit of disagreement. It's true that we don't have an absolute vital interest there, but there is a concern, and I think it's a very real concern, that if we pull out of Afghanistan, that it will very quickly become a safe haven for the global jihad once again. And I don't think that we are capable, through drone attacks and monitoring from a distance, of keeping the Taliban and al-Qaeda on their back heels without a significant presence on the ground. Mike, could I push you on that issue? Because I think that there is a real problem with that logic, which I think that a lot of very bright people, including yourself, have put forward. Because you look at a country like Yemen, 
Yemen is a failing state. Yemen has become a base for the global jihad, exactly as you're uh, suggesting Afghanistan could become again. And yet we're not trying to build Yemen into a new modern country where that will no longer be the case. Uh, So why is it that we ought to do that in the case of Afghanistan, but not in the case of Yemen? Well, I think um, for a couple of reasons. One, historically, because of the role that Afghanistan has played as the center of the global jihad. And secondly, the proximity to Pakistan. So I I guess I would say that I don't entirely agree with you that Afghanistan and our current Afghan policy is not playing an important role in putting pressure on Pakistan to deal with the elements in the Pakistani system that are themselves supporting the global jihad. Ken Pollack, in this program, we've been looking back at the past 30 years or so of American policy in the Middle East. A key turning point for the U.S. in the greater Middle East took place in 1979 and 1980, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, the Iranian Revolution took place, and President Carter declared the region was of vital interest to the United States. The U.S. got involved in the Afghan wars and fought two wars in Iraq since. Are we at another one of those generational turning points, like the one we saw in the late 70s and early 80s? I would hope that we are. My fear is that we actually aren't going to treat it as such. What's going on today is an opportunity for the United States between the Arab Spring, between what is going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. Everything that is going on in the region creates an opportunity for the United States to finally say we now have a moment when we might actually help put this region on a better path. It will be a long and difficult path, but it's one that might actually get the region to a much better place, one where it doesn't need an external guarantor, where it doesn't need the United States constantly coming in to prevent aggressors or failed states or the other problems of the region. But it's not clear to me that we're going to make that effort because right now the U.S. public is so focused on its own internal problems, which in some sense is understandable, but I think that it could be terribly nearsighted. We may be missing a terrific opportunity to actually deal with the underlying problems of the region and make it unnecessary for the U.S. to keep going back there. Michael Duran, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Michael Duran is a senior fellow at the Saban Center at the Brookings Institution. Ken Pollack, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for having me, Ray. Ken Pollack is director of the Saban Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. You've been listening to America and the Middle East, What Lies Ahead? Visit us on the web at americaabroad.org to sign up for our monthly podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Aaron Lobel is our executive producer. Our program was produced by Monica Bushman and Flawn Williams. Additional production help came from Robert Frazier at Monitor Studios. Steve Martin is our director of broadcasting and station relations. Four-piece suit composed our theme music. I'm Ray Suarez. And this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this program is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Stewart Family Foundation, and the American Interest, a magazine devoted to illuminating America's global role. Support also comes from this station and Public Radio International stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.